Today we're continuing our series through the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. We're in a series called The Ministry of Jesus, where we are looking at everything Jesus ever did. Uh, every interaction he ever had and every word he ever spoke. Um, and uh, it's going to take us a long time to finish it, again, because of the amount that we're studying. Um, but we're committed to this study because we believe uh, that the highest calling of a disciple is to be like Jesus. To, to learn from him and to learn to be with him and to learn what it is for us uh, every single moment of every single day to ponder and consider uh, what would Jesus do if he were me. Uh, today, uh, we continue in that series. We have uh, come through a lot so far. We started with Jesus um, at his baptism at the Jordan River. Then we walked, we walked through the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And then we came back out as Jesus gathers his first disciples, uh, those first five guys. And, and, and John the Baptist declares, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And, and today, uh, or last week, we, we ended up in Galilee. And today we continue uh, there. And I want to unpack this story that we're going to read today in John chapter 2. Uh, today and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in John chapter 2. You can go ahead and turn your Bible over there. And the reason we're going to be in John's gospel um, for the majority of, of these early sermons is because John's gospel has the majority of these early accounts of Jesus' ministry. And I, I want to tell you why that is. Well, John's gospel uh, was written as a collection of evidences. John declares himself, this is the reason why he wrote the gospel. He's trying to prove to you and to me both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. At the end of the gospel of John, John the apostle will say, these are written, these words, all these stories, everything you've read so far are written that you may believe. And that Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's what John is after. He's helping, he's trying to help us believe. So throughout the gospel, this, the author, the apostle John, is just going to line up supporting proofs so that as we read this gospel, we will be sort of overwhelmed with the proof that Jesus is both man and God. Amen. This is why if you're trying to just dip your toe into the Christian worldview, I always encourage people, start with the gospel of John. Begin by reading this because it was written so that you would believe. So the mechanism John the Apostle uses is both word and, and works, and the gospel is filled with not only what Jesus did, but also what other people said about Jesus and what Jesus said. Uh, and really, that's what we've been after so far. From the very first chapter, we have seen just this uh, 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 in, un, almost unsurmountable evidences of, of who Christ is. From the very first word of the very first chapter, the very first verse is about Jesus. Look what it says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and he was with God in the beginning. And, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things, this is all about Jesus. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but it did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, or, or, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only, one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
You open up the pages of John, and right away, the Apostle John wants you to stop and go, I want to tell you who we're talking about. We're talking about the Logos, the Word of God who became flesh. And then shortly thereafter, we meet John the Baptist, and John, John sees Jesus walking by the, 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 the basin there of the, of the River Jordan. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And then we have testimony of those five followers of John the Baptist who, who left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. And, and what do they say? Well, we read this last week, right? We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. All of this is in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we learn the, the, the words of, or we listen to the words of people talking about Jesus, people who walked with Jesus, who learned from Jesus. And what do they say about him? Well, they say he is God. He was with God. That everything was made through him that has ever been made. That he is the light and the light and the life. That, that he is God in human flesh that he is the Lamb of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one spoken about during the Old Testament, that he is the King of the Jews, that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And all of these confessions happen just in the very first chapter of the book of John. There's incredible grandeur, right? Let's set up who Jesus is. God made man. It's this awesome picture. And then you turn to chapter 2, and the very first scene is Jesus at a party. <laughs> it's a little bit strange, right? <laughs> Here is the Son of God who made all things. And the next verse, he's dancing. <laughs> you know, he's hanging out with some friends. And it's in this party that we see the very first works of Jesus. There are eight signs in the Gospel of John. Jesus turns water to wine. That's John chapter 2. Jesus heals a dying man, John chapter 4. He heals the paralyzed man, John chapter 5. He creates food out of nothing, John chapter 6. And he walks on water at the end of John chapter 6. John chapter 8, he, uh, or John chapter 9, I'm sorry, he heals a, a blind man. John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 21, he, he makes food for his disciples. And then obviously there's also the miracle of him raising from the dead. But this is the very first miracle we see. This is the first moment of his public ministry. And so we're going to read it together, then we're going to pick it apart, and then I'll come back and give you some relevant application. Are you guys with me? Yeah. All right, here we go. John chapter 2, we'll start in verse, uh, in verse 1. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his 
disciples believed in him. There's that word again. This is a miracle, but it's totally understated. I think it's because this story is actually more than just a miracle. And in this story, as we will discover, there is a universal truth that we can get from it. And I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but as we unwind the story, I think that you will see that though this miracle may look at first glance like just some sort of trivial act, this miracle is actually going to give you some vital spiritual instruction about the way you're supposed to relate to Jesus. So let me break it down, and then we'll come back to that. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Last week, we talked about Jesus. This is our map again uh, of Israel. Uh, Last week, we we had Jesus moving from sort of the Dead Sea all the way up to Bethsaida there. Um, And now we have him moving into Cana. Uh, Remember last week, we had the Joe gave us sort of a National Geographic uh, topical geography class. Uh, It was awesome. I loved the the picture. I was like, this is great. I so much appreciate Joe's scholarship, don't you? It's just amazing. and so, and so, again, we went from the Dead Sea all the way up to Bethsaida, and then Bethsaida, and now we're in Cana. Now we're in Cana. And the Bible tells us it's the third day. Well, the third day of what? Well, this is a good indication, again, that, G, that John the Apostle is there. He's amongst that crowd. This is the third day after the previous meeting that Philip and Nathaniel uh, had, and, uh, which we looked at last week. It's the third day after that meeting. Uh, again, this, this is an indication, as I mentioned before, that, that John the Apostle is there. But what a jam-packed week that must have been. Jesus goes from the Dead Sea, uh, where he's like, you know, he gets all these followers all the way up here. He walks that long distance uh, on that river basin there. And then he, he's crossed over, and this is all in the, in the same week. And we have these five or four disciples gathered, depending on what you think about Nathaniel. But we have Andrew and Peter and Philip and John, and Jesus is in Cana. The village of Cana is about uh, nine miles to the northwest of Nazareth. You can kind of see it. I don't know if you can see it on this map, but let's see. This is Nazareth up there. You see that? And that's Cana. Boom. Uh, So it's about nine miles to the northwest. This is a super small place. Um, uh, Just anecdotally, it's Nathaniel's hometown. We learn that in John chapter 21, verse 2. But, but it's, Cana is remarkably small. Nazareth, for example, um, I read a number that, that uh, some commentators put the population at about 500 total people. 500 people. That's less than the membership of this church. Nazareth, that's Nazareth. It was a small place. And, and by comparison, uh, Cana is even smaller. The same commentator speculated that there would be about a hundred people living in Cana. We can't be sure, but what we know that it's super small. It's an agricultural village, not very many people, uh, and that means that this wedding would have been a huge deal. Everybody in the towns and the surrounding towns would have been there. That's why we get the indication that Jesus and his disciples were invited. But we would imagine that, that for the most people around the village, this would have been the celebration. All these families would have known each other. Um, they would have lived there for generations. These people weren't very mobile. It wasn't like they moved from place to place to place. So, so, so everyone had grown up there. Everyone had grown up together. They had known each other. So here is this wedding, and it's like the community is marrying this, this couple. It would have been a huge event. 
What I imagine, I'm Puerto Rican, so what I imagine is sort of like a Puerto Rican, or if you're an islander, an island wedding, you know? It's like, um, hey, everybody, this is Cousin Carlos. And you're like, how do we, how are we related? He's your aunt's brother's neighbor's sister's best friend's aunt. You're like, sounds, sounds good. <laughs> Just call him Carlos. Everyone knows him. He knew you when you were a baby. All right, that's, that sounds, that, sounds, that sounds good. So this is what I imagine this, this wedding to be like. You know, every aunt, every uncle, every friend of an aunt or friend of an uncle would have been there for this major wedding event. And the wedding wasn't like, you know, a one-night thing. Weddings were a huge deal. One, re- one writer said that they would uh, start early uh, in the week, normally on the day after Sabbath, and they would go all week long. Seven days of partying. And the reason it was such a huge celebration was not only because they were getting married, but because of all that it took to be engaged See, the marriage wasn't just a celebration. Um, It was a celebration of something that had been initiated about a year before. So think about this. You're getting married to your, 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 or you're being betrothed to your spouse. But the way that relationship would have started is your parents and their parents would have gotten together, sort of made a deal. Hey, is your son any good for my daughter? Uh, uh, Maybe, uh, maybe not. Uh, You know, uh, you know, they're, they are a little, you know, on the, you know, whatever, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they make a deal. They exchange some, some vows. And at that point, when you're betrothed or when you're engaged, it was a legal binding contract. An engagement could only be broken by a divorce. It wasn't like today. You're like, I'm sick of them. It's like, no, you have to go through the courts. To be engaged was to be legally promised to somebody. But again, it wasn't consummated till the very end of this party. Because there was a lot of work to be done if you were going to get married. The party, again, wasn't just a celebration of the wedding. It was a celebration of the engagement. Because during that year, the husband had to get to work. The bridegroom had to prepare a place for his bride. (laughs) This will be important later on, so just follow me. And by the way, if you're a dad, you're like, this is exactly what I've been telling to my daughters. The husband has to build a house for his wife. I mean, I'm not talking about like build a house. I'm talking about like, like build a house. It could be putting an extension to the family house or the, or the father's house, but you know, you're going to build a house. It was the groom's responsibility to do that. And to be, to be, to be sure, like this wedding wouldn't happen until that house was built. And the father got a chance to look around the house. Like the father of the bride, yeah, I don't like this. No, no, you know, like, but the, the work had to be done. And think about what it takes to build a house. Some of you guys have tried to, you know, uh, redo your, your kitchens, you know, and the nightmare that causes. Just, just imagine building a house, laying a foundation, building up the walls, laying a roof, building your furniture, building the food storage and filling the food storage, you know, and laying the foundations and on and on and on and on and on. This was all the man's responsibility. And it had to be done before the party began. Oh, and by the way, it was also the man's responsibility to, he had the full costs of the wedding. Think about that. I have a new tradition we're going to bring to this church. (laughs) Everything, every food, every bit of food, all the drinks, the, the DJ, you know, those overpriced uh, boutonnieres, all that stuff. Photographer, all that stuff. You know, it's his responsibility. And when all of that was finally prepared and it was checked off by the father of the bride, 
they could have the party. You might wonder, well, why that is? Well, it's because this was a test, of course. Can this guy take care of my daughter? He had to demonstrate that he could provide for this, for this woman. And if he could provide for her and he could prove himself, then they would have the wedding. So, of course, you know, we get to the wedding. So that means he did, he built the house. He did everything. They get to the celebration. It's finally time and everyone's there, you know. Uh, and, and by the way, Jesus uses this illustration of the wedding feast or the wedding banquet throughout his ministry. Uh, Luke chapter 14, Matthew chapter 22, uh, Matthew chapter 25 with the story of the ten virgins, right? There's a virgin waiting. That's that same illustration of, of waiting for the husband to prepare the place. And then maybe the most famous one, Jesus says in John chapter 14, my father's house has many rooms. If that, if that were not so, would I have not told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. Again, Jesus is using that illustration. I am preparing a place for you. He has gone away. He is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. He is going to prepare a place for us, and then he will come back and take us to be with him. It's pretty cool, right? It's amazing. So, so anyway, this man has been working all year, preparing, gathering, organizing, you know, making sure everything's in perfect position, and everyone's there, and they're celebrating, and then when the wine ran out... Now, this is a huge problem. This is a colossal embarrassment. Why? Because they were all drunks. I'm just kidding. That's not why. Uh, the, the, the reason why, he's like, why don't they make it a dry wedding? Well, well no, no, you actually need wine because you can't drink water because water is dangerous. There's no way to purify water at the time. Um, so the way you purified water is by drinking wine. <laughs> So, so they needed something to drink. You know, I read one place that they would cut it. They would cut the wine um, by like one part wine, three parts water, or one part wine, ten parts water. So, but you had to have the wine mixed in because there, there was no way to just drink water and assume that you would be fine. And so anyway, so, so this groom had spent a year preparing for his marriage, and he gets to the party, and he's actually ill-prepared. It's the day of reckoning, and it's become totally obvious that he has made a miscalculation. This is a major problem. I read one place that this could have been grounds for divorce. The husband or the father of the bride could have looked at it and gone, you don't know how to take care of my, my daughter, and just taken her away. Think of how intense that would be. And by the way, single brothers, this is what the fathers in this church are looking for when you think about marrying our daughters. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, 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 I'm not saying go build a house, but you better lay a spiritual foundation. So, all right. That, that was all for free. It's not even in my notes. Uh, th this, is a, this is a colossal disaster. So, verse 3. When the wine was gone... Jesus' mother said to him, said to Jesus, they have no more wine. We don't know what Mary's role is, but we assume that she's like helping out in the wedding ceremony somehow, you know. Um, we don't exactly know, but, 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 but Mary realizes there's a problem. Maybe everyone knows there's a problem, or maybe it's just a handful of people, but, but she comes to Jesus. And some people ask, well, why did she come to Jesus? Well, 
some people say, well, is she asking for a miracle? And that may be true, but I don't think it's that. I think there's actually something more obvious than that. Why would Jesus, why would Mary go to Jesus? Well, well l- let, me, let me ask it a different way. What do you think she did when she had any problem, ever? She went to the God-man that was living in her house. Jesus has never had a bad idea in his whole life. The wisest man who has ever lived. He never set her in a wrong direction. He, he never had a wrong solution. If something went wrong, he knew exactly why it went wrong. So, of course, Jesus' mom would go to Jesus and go, hey, could you help out? Because I don't know what to do here. The other thing that I, I know Mary knew about Jesus is that Jesus loved people. And he also understood what a colossal disaster this would have been for that bridegroom. And so she's just appealing, hey, Christ, Jesus, can you help out? It's going to be humiliating for him. You know, you could think about it like this. This culture was a culture that was okay and I would say more, more comfortable than shame, with shame than, than maybe we are. Shame was a way of sort of telling people you're not doing things right. So if this man would have gotten divorced from his wife because he couldn't provide, it's likely that he may have never been even been able to get married. Like, we have, like, Twitter mobs. This would have been, like, actual mobs. You know, you know what I'm talking about? So, so it's, it's intense. And so Jesus' mom's like, hey, c- can you help? Can you help? And Jesus responds, woman, why do you involve me? Woman, it's not a harsh woman. It sounds like it's harsh, but it's not. It's more like the expression ma'am. By the way, it's the same word Jesus uses in John chapter 19 when Jesus is on the cross and he gives his mother to John the apostle. Ma'am, it's it's not mean. It's not woman. You know, it's, it's, it's... it's, it's woman, you know, behold, when he says behold your son or whatever. So anyway, he, he's just, he's saying, hey, my, my time has not yet come. I'm not sure what you want me to do here. That's basically what he's saying. There's something else happening here, and I just want to touch it for a second. In this little dialogue, there's also a sense of Jesus, le- like, acknowledging that he is no longer under, under the authority of his mom, and he's now under the authority of his father. Like, my time has not yet come is a way of saying, like, hey, I have to wait for God to tell me what to do. Like, I lived in your household for a long time and submitted to your ways for a long time, but now I submit to my father's business. So I believe this is why Jesus adds, my, my hour has not yet come. And Jesus actually uses this line, my hour has not yet come, or my hour has come throughout the Gospel of John, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. Um, but, but anyway, um, but then strange enough, Jesus just does it anyway. <laughs> his, mother, his mother said to the servants, uh, do whatever he tells you. And, and this is interesting to hear, you know, a couple of things I wonder. Maybe, you know, it's the boldness of Jesus, or Jesus' mom that makes Jesus do it. Maybe it's like the persistent widow. We don't, we don't really know, but maybe he checked in with his father, and his father's like, go for it. But either way, uh, the story moves very quick from there. Nearby, so you imagine the wedding, you know, Jesus has been pulled aside. I like the, the Chosen. The Chosen has a little indication of, if you ever watched that, like, you know, Jesus is like pulled over to a corner room. I like that picture. So Jesus is pulled over to the corner room, and, and there all the jars are there, and he, he looks over to the servants, and he says, hey, uh, fill them to, to, the, to the brim. The, these, you know, about 25 gallons, let's call it, so we have 150 gallons of water. 
and they fill it, they fill it to the brim. They did so, and, and, and then they, what they did is they filled to the brim, um, and then they told them, now draw some out. You know, so, so the servants are there, they fill it to the brim, they, they draw some of the, some of the water out, and he tells them, hey, take it to the master of the banquet, take it to like the lead chef. And then, it says they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. When did the water turn to wine? In between verses 8 and verse 9. <laughs> like, like, like right, right there. It's so understated, but it's a miracle. Let me ask you a question. This is not rhetorical. How do you get wine? Grapes. Great. How do you get grapes? Vines. How do you get vines? Seeds. How do you get, how do you get seeds? Other vines. How, how do you get vines to grow? Sunlight, water, earth. How do you get the grapes to become wine? You crush them, then you strain them, and then you let them sit for two to three weeks. How did Jesus do this? <laughs> there are no grapes. There are no vines. There are no seeds. There are no other seeds. There is no, you know, earth. There, 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 there's, there's no two or three weeks between this line. It's not like comma three weeks later, you know? Jesus creates wine out of nothing. And he doesn't even, like, make it sound magical. Like, he's not like, Wingardium Leviosa or something like that, you know? <laughs> it's just, it's a miracle. It's a miracle in order to save a man from shame. A miracle. The, the banquet master did not realize where it had come from. I love this little line. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, of course they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and it was a panic a minute ago. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine or the best wines first, and then the cheaper stuff, you know, later on, after the guests have had too much to drink. Yeah. But you have saved the best for last. The waiter doesn't know where it comes from. Jesus didn't need earth. He didn't need vines. He didn't need seeds. He just makes the best wine, the Screaming Eagle Cabernet, 1992. <laughs> I had to look that up. I don't know anything about wine. <laughs> this is Eden kind of wine. It's perfect. And then he explains it. He's like, normally people don't do that. They wait until later on in the party, and then they bring the, the worst stuff, but you brought the best stuff first. And this is axiomatic. You all, everyone does this. You know, this is obvious. You know, what do you do when company comes over? You give them the stuff you prepared for them, and if they're just hanging out, then you're like, I also have some pizza from yesterday. <laughs> you know, like, you're like digging through your fridge, you know, like, um, there are some grapes. I think they're still good. You know, like, like that, that's, just, that's just what it does. And so that's what happens. You know, after they've ran through everything, then you bring out the bad stuff. And, Jesus, and, and the, the banquet host says, you brought out the best stuff. You brought out the best stuff at the very end. And again, Jesus did all of this to save a man from shame. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and, again, his disciples believed in him. Because they had a front row. They saw what Jesus did 
for a man at Cana. And here I'd like to lean a little bit into an application for you. Let's for a moment take this account and look at it through the lens of a parable. Just for a second, and I know that's not proper hermeneutics, but just bear with me. If this was a parable, do you know who the characters would be? You would be the bridegroom. The party would be an illustration of the way you worked to build a life for yourself. Or the way that that we work to make things perfect, to make things awesome. And just like this story, when you do that, you quickly realize you aren't as prepared as you thought you were. You know, we think we're we're, we're prepared for our kids and setting up their future. We think we're preparing our finances for a rainy day. We think we know what we're doing, but all of us along the way, typically, it's when life punches you in the face, you find out that you're not as prepared as you thought you were. Your preparation runs dry. All of our passions have a tendency to fade. Our abilities to inspire ourselves or motivate ourselves, all of that has an expiration date. This story is so familiar to most of us. We, we worked, we worked, we strive, we strove to do something great, and eventually we realize, man, I'm running on empty. It's familiar for you, I bet, but it's also really familiar with me. I want to share, you something, share with you something that's really personal. It's um, during the pandemic, or the first day of the pandemic, I don't know if you guys remember this, but the Sunday, sorry, the Wednesday before the, the beginning of COVID-19, uh, we announced that we were going to have, we're not going to pass trays anymore. That was our big revelation. No more tray passing. Um, because there was a virus, and who knows, and there's a, you know, five people who have it, and blah, blah, blah. And so that was a Wednesday. By Friday, I believe that was March 13th, by Friday, we had gotten word. I was on this call of a bunch of pastors in the area. On Friday, we had gotten word that all the schools in Broward County were shutting down on that Monday. And I remember thinking, I think that means we're going to have to cancel church. We were like, well, 50 people were allowed in a room at the same time. Do you guys remember that? So, so like, like, I don't know how that works, but whatever. That was the rule. Uh, so, so we were like, okay, let's pivot. And we did almost immediately. We had a digital team at the time. I appreciate so much our digital team for that moment. They shifted. And, and yeah, they were amazing. But I was like, let, let's do this. Like, there's a crisis. Let's, let's fix it. So we shifted digital team. You know, we, we, that Saturday we had our first a live stream service. We showed it on Sunday. We were high-fiving. We were like, let's do it. We can do this. Like six months into that, it was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and it's like eight months into that, like, oh, Lord, please let us go back to in-person services. And, and, then, and then we had our first in-person service, and, 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 and it was like, oh, okay, there's like seven people at church on Sunday morning. And, and man, it was what a year. You know, we put everything on our backs, like, let's go. I remember even thinking that, like, let's go. Like, I'm going to fight to make sure this church survives this season. And in this, in this season, we had conversations about politics. Oh, I do not want to go back to November 2020. Conversations about race, fights about masks, like conversations about vaccines. You know, and we read all the books and doing all the study and trying to carry me personally, trying to carry the church on my back. 
And eventually I looked around and I had nothing left. I was like, I think I'm just going to be an accountant. Like, I don't know, what's the most, what's the most opposite of a minister job you can have? I don't, I, didn't, I don't know how to lead in a pandemic. I don't know how to help people who are politically so divided as they are. I don't know how to, you know, I don't know what to do when people don't want to come to the building, but there are, I don't know what to do about any of that. I don't know how to inspire a staff. And, and waves of this, but man, it really hit me a, a couple of weeks ago. I don't have anything left. And you know, when you think you ought to be doing better, what happens when you're like, man, I think I, I should be fighting more and I should be pushing more and I should have new initiatives and I should have more inspiration. You know what comes in eventually is just shame. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. This will never work. And you just doubt disappointment. And I'm not trying to project my insecurity on you. I'm just trying to be vulnerable. And, but, but it's just like this man. You know, I felt the sense of utter failure was on the horizon for me. But you know what's actually been remarkably helpful? Studying Jesus and realizing, not having our situation change at all, but realizing that, and this is the thing I want you to capture, that I, that I can invite Jesus to fill in the areas where I'm empty. And if I don't, I'll burn out and run dry. But if I do, Man, Jesus just kind of takes over. I've had some people email going like, these last couple services have been so incredible. I'm so, and I'm like, great. I've been totally uninspired. And it's like, just because it's all about Jesus. Jesus fills up in the areas where you're lacking. Like, this is what I found out. Lord, I need your inspiration. I need your guidance. I need your passion. I need some courage. And I want to carry it all on my back. But the longer I carry it on, the mat, on my back, the more I feel crushed. And when I feel crushed, that's when God really does his work. <laughs> it's like, oh, now you realize you can't do it? Let me help you out. <laughs> and I, I just love the fact that Jesus is willing to come in and fill the life of men and women who are willing to invite him in. And, and, and here's just a couple of warnings for you. What you build will collapse, will ultimately come to ruin if you don't invite Jesus to make a way and to fill you up and to do what's right and to guide you through the situations. And I know it's our cultural norm, right? And it's become a norm, the, the idea that, you know, I don't need anybody else to help me. You know, I'm a, a self-made man. You know, and, and certainly in that description, self has become the new God and the new spiritual authority and the new spiritual morality. And, and, but, but here's the problem. It puts a crushing weight on you. And, and, and one that you were never actually designed to carry. There is so much in this world, right? You're supposed to discover yourself and be true to yourself and justify yourself and make yourself happy and perform and defend yourself. And by, by the end of the day, you, you realize, man, I'm supposed to do all these things for myself, but I'm not actually as great as I thought I was. <laughs> I can't even take care of myself. I can't take care of my family. I have no control of my life. The pressure is exhausting. And then, you know, you can start cueing all the stats about anxiety and burnout and mental health and all those issues. But I just want to tell you, you know, Jesus loves us so much that he wants to come in and be a part of the things that are most important to your life. Like Jesus wants to help you out if you will only just let him in. 
If you open your heart and your mind and humbly ask him, hey, Lord, would you just come? Like, I have this decision about my job, and I feel like the weight of my family is on my back. Jesus, would you help me make those decisions through your word, through the words of other people? Lord, help me, because I can't carry this. Man, God loves to come in and do a little miracle with you. Your marriage looks like it's on the rocks. Your pace looks like it's faded because, you know, your, 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 your kids aren't what you wanted them to be or you're not married and you want it, you're not even dating. Your, your joy seems like you can't hold on to it. And he wants to just kind of make sweet new wine out of all of that stuff. So church, I just want to encourage you. Will you invite him into the situations that are most important to you? How do you do this? Well, it's a two-step process. One, admit the places you're running dry. You gotta be honest. You gotta be honest. I don't feel like I have it. Admit the places you're running dry. And the second thing is let him speak to you. Through his words, through the words of others, through quiet meditation. Let him speak to you. You may have to go back ten times before you finally understand what God is trying to do. But man, unless you're willing to admit it and invite him in, the things that are most important to you are just gonna fall apart. They're gonna fall apart. And when you hear his voice, I encourage you to let him take the lead. And he will take all that's broken and make something beautiful out of you. I do believe God wants to do a miracle with any of us who are willing to humble out. I want to close with this passage. This is Revelation chapter 3. It is the perfect illustration of this. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is a painting. Um, it's called The Light of the World by William Holland, Honald Hunt. It was painted in, um, I think, 18, in the 1850s. Um, it sits right now in Manchester City Art Gallery. It's actually the most traveled piece of art ever. It's been all over the world. Um, this is an illustration of Revelation chapter 3. Here Jesus stands, uh, a depiction of Jesus stands with the lantern because he is the light of the world. And he stands and he's knocking at a door. You can't really make out the door, and that's part of the reason, because it's overgrown. And if you looked up here, you would realize that the, the, the brass handle has been basically um, shut up by, by rust. And what the point of this is that like Jesus is waiting for you to let him in. <laughs> He's waiting. The stuff that's most debilitating and most frustrating in your soul, he's just like, let me have my way. Let me in. And so many of us have just instead closed the door on him and it's become overgrown and we don't even know where our door is anymore. We don't even know how to let him in anymore, but I just let you know. I want to let you know. And it's been just inspiring for me. If you allow him to come in, Jesus is willing to do a miracle. He may not change your situation, but he will change you. <laughs> and, and, that, and that is more than enough. Father, we uh, come before you and we know that um, as we take uh, communion here in just a second, as we um, take the bread that represents your body and, and your juice that represents your blood, um, we, we also um, have a moment of remembering just the teachings that you've given us, God, that the, the ways that you are trying to instruct us how to live, Lord, so many people in this room have, 
I've closed you off, God. We've closed you off for, for a, a myriad of reasons. We closed you off because we wanted to be self-actualizing. We, we've closed you off because um, we thought we could handle it. We closed you off because we thought you wouldn't be concerned about it. Uh, Lord, or, or you, maybe we believe that you weren't loving enough to engage, or, or maybe this was beyond you know, what you would want to do. And, and, and God, I just, I just want to uh, corporately, Lord, ask for your forgiveness. Um, Dad, we have no idea what we're doing. We have prepared our homes. We, have, we thought we were making everything right. We made the wedding great. We, we did everything. And Lord, quickly we have realized that we have run out of the most important elements of what we need to be successful. God, I just ask you that you would fill our hearts. Lord, fill this leadership of this church with inspiration. God, fill me personally with a passion to lead. Um, fill, fill the members here with a drive to be committed to your gospel anymore. I pray for all the people who have become complacent over the past two years, Lord, and their, and their faith has become a Sunday morning watching it online while, while doing the dishes type thing. I pray that all of us will repent of that. Lord, that we will instead be filled with your spirit again and filled with enthusiasm again and filled with passion and, and filled with love for you, Lord, so that we can have the life that you promised, a life that is full. That as we take this communion now, I just ask that you would just listen to our prayer, that you would respond and give us the things that we most need in our lives. We love you, Dad. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.